My name's Chris. I'm one of the pastors here, and we are in the middle of a four-part series um, on the attributes of God. Last week, we dug into the idea that God is great. God is great. So many things come to our head when we think about God. So many ideas, so many opinions, so many, so many things that we project upon this person of God based on our own experience, based on our own knowledge, based on who we are. But we have to know God as he's revealed himself. Last week we looked at the greatness of God and its immediate application to our life. God is great, so we do not have to be in control. That was last week. We, we saw very particularly that all of our efforts to control our lives, to control the world around us, actually is a display of not believing that God is great. All of our efforts to control, to manipulate the circumstances around us, and to, um, and, and to do all that we can to make everything line up the way that we want to, is actually an affront against the, one of the greatest characteristics of God and the fact that he is great. And I'll talk a little bit more about some, some of the details of that. But the point of this series is that we realize that behind every negative emotion, behind every sin, behind every aspect of falling short of the glory of God is unbelief. It's unbelief. There is a gap between what we truly know about God, what we know to be true, there's facts that we understand, there's stuff that we can read in the Bible and know about God, and, our, and we can articulate those things. But there's often a gap between what we believe is true about God and what is real to us. This series is about closing that gap between what we know intellectually about God and what we actually sense is real about God. And so our lives are changed. We saw last week that we are the most unbelieving believers when we look at the totality of God's character and his goodness and his attributes and how we live instead. Now, I want to show this to you in Ephesians 4 so you can understand this connection even deeper between what we think and how we live. We can show Ephesians 4 up here. Let me read it. Paul is saying, Now this I say and testify in the Lord. This is Ephesians 4, 17 through 20. That you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. Now he's talking to believers here. And he's saying, you must no longer walk like those who do not know Christ. They are darkened in their understanding. The Gentiles, those that are separate from God, those who do not worship God, those who do not honor Him, those that know nothing about Him, they are darkened in their understanding. And he's saying, you Christians, so are you. And I can tell by the way you're living. Look at this. They are darkened in their understanding alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way that you learned Christ. He's, Paul, what is Paul saying here? He's saying there are Christians that live just like they don't even know who God is. They live just like those who don't even know. Their understanding of God and who he is has been darkened. Christians that are not experiencing the fullness of the life of God and are alienated from it to the extent that they are functionally ignorant 
functionally ignorant of who God is. And all of this comes from a hardness, or what the King James Version says, a blindness, a blindness of heart. It is this that causes us to continue to desire things over and against God himself. And what does Paul say that we're rejecting here? When we confess to know God and the truth about God, but yet we live just like those who don't, what is he saying? He says, you're learning what, you're rejecting what you learned, what you first learned about who Jesus is. So taking a step back, we see that we sin because we no longer believe in who God is for us in Christ. In verse 23, which is right after this, then he calls the church at Ephesus to renew their minds, to have their minds renewed, the spirit of their minds be renewed. So we see that Paul is even making this connection between every negative emotion begins with wrong thoughts about God and not really believing what the scripture says him to be. This is what we're after in this series, is that our minds would be renewed, that we would actually perceive God as he really is, and he would not just be an idea, not just be truth, but he would be real. And our lives are going to be changed because of that. Tozer, I read this last week, and it deserves to be read again. A.W. Tozer said this. He said, what comes to our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. The history of mankind will probably show that no people has ever risen above its idea of God. For this reason, the gravest question before us is always God himself. And the most pretentious fact about any man is not what he at any given time may say or do, but what he in his deep heart, in his deep heart, what he conceives God to be. Our desires, our choices, our experiences, what we do, the difference between experiencing a dull life or a satisfying life, a meaningful or a lifeless experience with God's people is all determined fundamentally by what we, in the depth of our heart, conceive God to be. Now, I hope that when you look at this, you're actually encouraged. I know it seems kind of negative, but, but here's the encouraging part in this. The fact that it's unbelief, unbelief is behind our sin. It's unbelief that's behind our negative emotions. Here, here's why this is encouraging to us. It's not an issue of our strength, of our willpower, our best efforts, or applying the right principles, combining the right mixture of anger management and self-control to curb our desires and rob our joy from God. That's not how we're, that's not how we're changed. It's also not the denial of passions, emptying ourselves of desire. That's all a man-centered way to redemption. Our hope comes in this. Our hope should rise in the realization that the answer to all of our problems is found in looking to God. Simply looking to God. And looking to Him to the end, that we would not just know Him intellectually, but that we would enjoy Him. And we want you to know, <laughs> as the pastors here at Redemption Hill, we want you to know that this is why we're talking about your soul so much. <laughs> this is why we're talking about sin so much. Sometimes it may seem like we're we're harsh. We're being very particular. We're, we're not letting up. But this is what we're after. We care about you so much that we know that the things that are in our souls is robbing us of joy in God. I want you to hear this. 
The whole reason we do this is so that you might have more joy. It is not to throw weight on you. It is not to discourage you. It is actually meant to encourage you when we unlock the desires in our hearts that are causing us to not experience the joy that God has called us to experience. I hope that makes sense, and I hope that puts this in the right frame for you. We want to be led in this study of God by someone who's living this. Not, not by someone who just knows the facts, but someone who's actually experiencing the greatness of God. Let's look again at Psalm 145. We looked at this last week. This is the, this is the finality. This is the, David's grand finale in the Psalms. This begins the last part of the book of Psalms that is just this cacophony of unending just stream of consciousness, overflow of joy and praise to God. And this is what David says, Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. His greatness is unsearchable. And we talked about that last week, how, how our understanding of God must begin with the reality that we cannot understand Him. We have to begin this pursuit by knowing that we will never, ever know the totality of His being and the limit of His attributes. He is greater than we will ever, ever know. And that should cause us to shudder and fear as we approach Him. That he is that great. On the glorious splendor of your majesty and on, the wondrous, and on your wondrous works, I will meditate. Glorious splendor. Then he says, they shall pour forth the fame of your abundant goodness and shall sing aloud of your righteousness. He ends by, the Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. We're going to look in this series about these four ideas. God is great. God is glorious. God is goodness, and God is gracious to the end that we will enjoy God's greatness. We will enjoy God's glory. We will enjoy his goodness, and we will enjoy his graciousness to the extent that it changes the way we live. Next week, we're going to hit goodness, and then we're going to hit enjoying God's grace. Under this category is really what God has done for us and how he acts towards us. Today, we're going to finish up this idea of God's greatness and look at his glory. And the conclusion is this. God is glorious, so we do not have to fear others. God is so glorious that we do not have to fear others. And I want you to hear this. I phrase that very purposefully. God is glorious, so we do not have to fear others. Not saying, God is glorious, so we should not fear others. One is simply looking at who God is and trying to obey a command. We are going to look into God's glory this morning, and I pray by God's Spirit that we will be so taken with who He is, and His, who God is, will become so large and meaningful to us that we will realize I do not have to fear others. Not that this is who God is and I have to please him by not fearing others. That's not what I'm saying this morning. God is so glorious that we don't have to fear. That our natural response to seeing God in his glory will be a removal of the fear of others in our life. That's what I'm after. 
this morning. That's what God's gospel can do for us. So let's look at Psalm 27. Psalm 27. This is, this is such a classic psalm where David is dealing with who God is, confessing who God is to himself in the light of being surrounded by his enemies. Um, someone, someone said, someone famous, I can't remember the name. Um, who is it? He said, anyway, most of our ills in life come because we are too busy listening to ourselves and not talking to ourselves. We're too busy listening to ourselves instead of talking to ourselves. We see here David is talking to himself about the truth about God. Look at this. This is our confession. And we're going to see these four sections in Psalm 27. And the first section is our confession. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and foes, it is they who stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. The war arise against me, yet I will be confident. Why on earth is David making this declaration? If you look at the psalm and the context of David's life, he is not saying this, this has not happened. He's not saying this after he's been delivered from his enemies. He is still surrounded and in the midst of his enemies. He's made a confession about God over and against his enemies. He has every reason to be afraid. That's why he is consciously reminding himself who God is. He is setting the Lord against his fears. He's not trying to convince himself my enemies don't exist. He's not trying to run from his enemies. He is convincing himself through the truth about God over and against his fears. Now, for us to appreciate his declaration here, though, we have to appreciate, we have to appreciate the fear that David's experiencing. If we're going to appreciate the goodness or the sorry, the glory of God in this and his goodness and his greatness. We're going to have to appreciate the depth of fear it's, and what fear is in our life. So I'm going to take a second to talk through this. There's lots of things that we can be afraid of. I mean, you could just name, you could, I could sit here all afternoon and name them. Sickness, death, poverty, losing sight of one of our kids at the beach. <laughs> Nothing will stop your heart faster than not knowing where your kid is when you're at the beach. Have you ever heard a strange tone in the doctor's voice when he reads you a lab result? Fear can come on us instantly and almost from anywhere. David there, however, in this particular place, says, whom shall I fear? He's talking about the fear of man. Now, some of you are going to get this immediately. Some of you are going to, yes, I understand. I fear others. Some of you, some of the more stronger types in here, (laughs) you're not going to quite see this as quickly. But just wait one second. You may think, I'm not afraid of others. I can stand up against someone to make my point. I can think of many times this week where I have stood up against someone's opinion or I've stood up against someone's... um, 
criticism of, let's say, my report at the office, or someone stood up in that meeting and said, I don't think your idea is going to work, and then you refuted them in front of everyone and showed them exactly why your idea works, and everyone sat down and you moved on as the hero, okay? You may think that, you know, if you're in business, you, you, I'm not afraid of man, I'm not afraid of people. You could probably think of examples where you haven't been afraid, where, where you've, you've, you've actually been strong. But that's not the point. The point is not what we display in our strength towards others. This is how we fear others. We fear whomever we think can give us what we really need. We fear whoever we think gives us what we really need. So to understand fear, we have to understand need. Now, a need is something that we deem essential to life. Okay? A need is anything that we deem as essential to life. Now, we're good. We're fine as long as we limit need to biological needs, you know, food, water, shelter. And we're good as long as we limit need to spiritual needs. But the reality is, is that this term need is the most elastic term in the world. All right? Or it's like the nationwide commercial. It's the world's most elastic term in the world. Okay? It, 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 it literally, what you think you need expands almost every single day. It incorporates your desires. It incorporates your whims. It incorporates your wants to where you will find yourself at the end of the day saying, I need anything. You watch a commercial and you realize that, oh my gosh, I really do need a jet ski. I didn't know I needed one, but I now know what's been missing in my life. You understand how that works. Look at some of these needs. I need to be appreciated by others. I need to be affirmed. I need to be loved. I need to be respected. I need to be obeyed. Parents. I hope I'm centering in on helping you feel your fear of man. I'm going to keep going just in case I haven't gotten some of you. This is a reality that's in our souls. These needs have become severe to us as food, shelter, and water. And all of this leads to peer pressure. Now, I know you think that you got over peer pressure when you left high school, okay? This is what it looks like for an adult, people-pleasing, people-pleasing. The reality is, is that once we look to others to affirm us, to edify us, to fix us, to give us all the things that we psychologically need, and we'll do everything we can to please that person so we keep getting that from them. I'm going to get more specific here. In just a second, but I want you to see that there are these two categories of, of I want and I need. I want sounds like I long for that. I'm not getting what I want. I demand this. I insist on this. But the reality is that those wants turn into needs, and we literally say, I cannot function. I cannot live. I cannot obey without my wife affirming me. I cannot obey without these certain things. <laughs> Look at the next slide. Let me see if this ever rings true for you. If only my boss would pay me more. 
If only I could get one more client. If only my husband would encourage me more. If only my wife would respect me. If only my children would obey me. If only he or she would show interest in me. And if only my parents would give me more independence. All of these if-onlys show you what you really think you need. And every person that holds in their person what you think you must have for life, you will fear. Think about it. There's so much that we need from others that in a real way, we're threatened by them. We're threatened by those that we need this stuff from because guess what? They may change. They may stop liking you. They may not say haul to you in the highway. They, highway, hallway. They, they may forget your birthday. They may not say a kind word to you. Your boss may look past you for a promotion. You may not sign that client. When you think about these people, they're no longer just someone you're afraid of. They actually threaten you because you cannot control them. You cannot ensure the fact that they are going to give you all the things that you think you need for life. So we feel threatened by people around us. We respect them. We're always conscious of these people. We live our very lives in light of them. Our every move is tracked by them. They go with us to bed, and they meet us when we get up in the morning. That's the way it feels like for me. I am a professional people pleaser. I find myself defined more often than I should, more often than I wish, defined by other people around me. What does my daughter really think of me? Really? Now, how can I, what can I do to impress my boss today? These are the thoughts that come crashing in on our minds. How can I get out of looking like a sinner? How can I minimize my sin with my friend so I can save face? I don't think I could live without so-and-so's respect. I thought I was your favorite. Who else is he or she spending time with? Huh? What if this person is a better leader, trainer, counselor, preacher, or community leader? Our madness never ends. We are running scared in almost every area of life, and we don't even know it. Now, there's a great quote in this book, and you know a book is good when you simply read the title, and you don't even have to, that helps you, and you put it aside, and you'll read it later. This, (laughs) remember I told you last week, I'm a lazy intellectual. I love book titles, all right? I collect book titles. <laughs> um, maybe one day I'll start reading these books. But Ed Welsh wrote, wrote a book, What Happens When People Are Big and God Is Small. He says this. He says, The fear of man can have many symptoms. Being overcommitted because we can't say no to anybody. Fear of being exposed by someone. Small lies we tell to make ourselves look good. People tend to make us angry, depressed, anxious. We avoid people, or we compare ourselves with everyone else around us. I hope you're getting a sense of what the fear of man means to you. Now, with this view, let's look back at David and what he's saying. With this idea of fear in our minds. 
We'll go to the next slide. This is the first part, still our confession. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? This light, David is saying this, that the Lord is my joy. If you look at light in Psalms, it's, there's always talking about the light of the eyes or the light of the face. Light here means that the Lord has become my joy. He's actually the light in my eyes. He's actually what makes me light up. He says the Lord is the stronghold of my life. He's saying that the joy of the Lord is my strength, and nobody can take my joy from me. When he weighs all of the possibilities of being hurt by all of his enemies, and he looks at all of his enemies on one side and puts them in a scale, and then puts God in who he is, in his greatness, in his goodness, in his glory, literally, his enemies don't even show up. They are meaningless to him in light of who God is. Though an army encamp around me, my sh- my sh- though an army encamp around me, my heart shall not fear. Does it ever? Do you ever feel like this? This is what happens to me. It's almost like when when I get a when I get when a fear comes in, like I don't know, I get afraid or anxious about something with one of my kids. It's almost like behind that fear is like a hundred more. And if I'm not careful, by ten o'clock in the morning, I'm literally surrounded by an army of fears and things that could happen to me. I mean. I know it's like once one threat comes, it's like there's no stop to all the rest. It's like one of my kids will stomp their feet and walk away. And then I think, oh my gosh, what's going to happen when they're 16? They're going to rebel, leave the house. They're going to get bad grades. They're going to fall away from God. People are going to realize that I am an awful parent and they won't love me and my reputation will be ruined. It's over. Just because Mia told me off in the morning. Does that happen to you? Do you ever follow your fears all the way to their illogical conclusion. <laughs> but David has one pursuit here in light of that. Let's look at it. Next slide. This is looking under the hood. Looking under the hood of David's heart. We see his confession. Now we're going to see What's going on inside of him? You know, when a, when a car is running and you, and, you, and you hear a car run, you're like, man, I want to see what that engine is like. I want to see what's making this car go fast. Let's, let's, let's see what makes, let's see what drives David here. It's because he's done this one thing. Everybody say one thing. Let's try it again. Everybody say one thing. Have I asked of the Lord? And that will I seek after. That I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. For he will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me high upon a rock. Of all the things that he could have asked for, the deliverance, the destruction of my enemies, remove me from this situation, get these people out of my life, doesn't ask any of those things. This one thing I'm going to ask God, that I could gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. I don't know about you, but I don't usually react like that. 
I want my stuff to get fixed. I want my peace to be recovered. I don't want things to mess up my plan and the script that I've written for my life and the script that I've written for everyone else around me. I don't want that messed up. And so I'm asking God to recover my script. Let my will be done on earth as it is in my own heart. That's what I'm asking God to do. But David doesn't do that. This one thing I've asked that he may see the beauty of the Lord. Now, The glory of God, the glory of God is such a nebulous, hard thing to define. But I'm going I'm to attempt to point to it this morning. What does David mean when he says, I want to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and inquire in his temple? He is ultimately saying, I want to experience a seeing of the glory of God. I want to see his glory. But it's something that you can't define. It's, it's something where you read in the Bible, you, you read it sometimes where it says, we give God glory. Okay. We're not giving God anything. Glory is the perception and the display of the manifold perfections of who God is. Glory is simply God displaying his many perfections. So when David says, I want to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord, he said, I want to see your glory. I want to see you give off and display who you are. So when we say glory, we mean that. When we say we want to give God glory, what we're saying is that we are moved to proclaim and draw attention to all the things that make God who he is. This is is the connection between beauty and glory and holiness that we see in the Psalms. I'm not going to put it up there, but you can write this down. Psalm 29.2 says, Give to the Lord the glory to his name. Worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. We're going to talk about holiness in just a second. Oh, worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. Fear before him all the earth. That was Psalm 96.9. Psalm 110.3 says, Your people shall be volunteers in the day of your power, in the beauties of of your holiness. Literally, to see and meditate upon the glory of his holiness is what David is after. Now, now we've got to define holy, which is even more difficult, but here we go. All right? God is holy. There's some terms that we can use, but again, we have to point to it. We can understand holiness as purity, absolute purity. Something that has no mixture. Something that is pure in its essence. And then we can understand holy as being separate. It is God is separate from us. And as we look into his holiness, we're actually looking at something that describes the totality of who he is. He is completely other than who we are. Stephen Charnock, the, the, one of my fast-becoming favorite Puritans, said this. He said, Holiness runs through the rest of all of God's attributes. It casts a luster upon them. It is an attribute of attributes. It is the glory of every perfection in the Godhead. As God's power is the strength of all his attributes, his holiness is the display of the beauty of them. It describes everything we prescribe to God. 
His justice is holy. His wisdom is holy. His power is called his holy arm. His truth is a holy promise. And his name, which signifies all that God is, is called holy. But honestly, the best way we're going to understand holiness is to see what it does to folks when people see holiness. Let's turn to Isaiah 6. We're going to see what it does to folks, and that will help us understand what holiness is. Isaiah 6. This is the prophet Isaiah, a holy man of God, someone who has been a minister of God's grace and truth and harsh words to Israel for years. But it says here that in the year that King Uzziah died, he saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two, the seraphim covered his face. With two, he covered his feet. With two, he flew. And one seraphim called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And they said this over and over again. And I said, It's Isaiah talking. Woe is me, for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips. I dwell in the midst of people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. What on earth is going on here? Isaiah is experiencing trauma in the presence of God. Look at the context, though, that... that the Lord shows himself to Isaiah. In the year that King Uzziah died, Uzziah was a long-reigning king in Israel. Literally for 55 years, this king had reigned and ruled well over Israel. This is like the last 12 presidents combined for us. 55 years. The nation is in a state of mourning and literally civic crisis. Um, Israel without, was without their king. They had for 55 years and were completely afraid of unrest, civil war, attack from other nations, stuff like that. This is the context that that God is showing himself to Isaiah in this moment. He thought they were, Isaiah and the whole nation of Israel thought that they were without a king. They thought they were without a king. Now the seraphim, these are, don't know much about them. They're a special breed of angelic beings, but, but this is amazing. They're completely sinless. These seraphim have never sinned. They're created by God, completely pure and separate. They've never sinned, and they can't even look at God. They are created beings. And that's why they have to cover their feet as well, because their feet represent, I am created. I am something that is, belongs to the earth I have feet, therefore I'm created. I cannot look upon the uncreated. And I cannot bear to have the uncreated look at my createdness. The seraphim couldn't even look at God. All they could do was proclaim over and over and over again to each other in God's presence, holy, holy, holy. Now this repetition is a very particular way in Hebrew language that you express something and give it emphasis. We would use bold face, we would use underline, we would use exclamation points. In Hebrew, you don't have any of that. What you have is this repetition. 
If you want to emphasize something and essentially say God is really, really, really holy and say really for eternity, that's what this is expressing. The perfection of holiness. Number three is the perfection of holiness. No other attribute of God is listed three times. It's never God is love, 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 or God is mercy, 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 or God is great, great, great. This is the only attribute of God that is listed three times, holy, holy, holy. It's like saying this is who God is. And to say God is separate, separate, separate doesn't really do it. Or God is pure, pure, pure. It doesn't carry the same essence. Holy, holy, holy. He's saying God is God is God and only he is God. The whole temple shook, including Isaiah. And he said, woe is me. And he saw his sin. I am a man of unclean lips and everyone around me is completely unclean in the light of your purity and your holy countenance. I have seen the real king, the Lord, is what he says. You know, fearing the Lord helps us walk in grace with one another. I mean, Isaiah would probably, in the nation of Israel, was probably the closest dude to God. Probably the most devout, the most sincere. And yet he puts himself on the same level playing field as everybody else. We judge each other. We compare ourselves to each other. We feel self-righteous in front of each other because we do not have the fear of God. We think we have something over and against someone else because we simply do not fear him. We need the fear of God to treat each other with grace. Isaiah's posture is absolutely a level playing field. No one is left standing in light of the holiness of God. So what's happening here? What's happening to Isaiah? What is happening to David? They are learning the fear of God. They're seeing the holiness of God. They're seeing the glory of God, which causes them to fear. Now, it's not the same as being afraid. Remember last week, I talked about these three ideas of fear where you can be afraid of something, like there's a tiger out there, and you're like afraid of what the tiger might do to you. And then there's this dread of like, oh my gosh, there's, there's, there's something even mis- more mysterious in there. So I'm dreading a ghost or something like that. But then there's this kind of fear that is like this undoing, this thing where we become profoundly disturbed if I were to say there's a mighty, unknown spirit in the room. This is the kind of, this is the closest thing to the fear of God. This is what David's experiencing. It's, it's funny. It's this fear that absolutely undoes you and absolutely causes you to see yourself in your sin and to, like Isaiah did, hit the, hit the ground. But you notice that Isaiah doesn't run. He doesn't run out of the temple when he sees God. He stays right there. The fear of God is not something that causes us to run. It is just as compelling and attractive as it is fearful and awesome. It is a fear that causes us to want it. Other word in, in Isaiah is called, we delight in the fear of the Lord. There is a delight that comes in seeing who God is and being absolutely afraid and absolutely enthralled and attracted at the same time. I love this story about Peter. Remember the story where Peter, Jesus' is number one apostle, 
who only opened his mouth to switch feet all the time. And he would, in this particular place, he's been fishing all night with his friends. And Jesus, the rabbi, shows up and says, Peter, why don't you, I, I know you're just coming in from a, all night of fishing and they caught nothing. So Peter's really hacked off at the moment. And Jesus says, Peter, there, go out there again and put your nets on the other side of the boat. Right, and Peter's like, right, okay. You're a rabbi, I'm a fisherman. You stick to preaching, I'll stick to fishing. But he does it. And it says that they caught so much fish that the boats were beginning to sink. They couldn't contain the fish and all the nets they had, so people had to run out there and help them. And what was Peter's reaction? Peter jumped out of the boat with all his clothes on and ran to Jesus' feet and said, depart from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. Now, get the picture. He runs to Jesus, grabs onto his feet, and says, depart from me. I can see Jesus kind of like, <laughs> you know, I'm trying, right? It, the fear of God is this thing that draws us to him, but yet at the same time we want to say no. Depart from me, but no, don't depart from me. David says it in the next section here. If you go to, um, if you go to the next section, this is our prayer. He says this. He says, Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud. Be gracious to me and answer me. You have said, Seek my face, and my heart says to you, Your face, O Lord, I will seek. Hide not your face from me. Turn not your servant away in anger. O you who have been my help, cast me not off. Forsake me not, O God of my salvation. He is seeing something of God that is absolutely terrifying, yet absolutely glorious. And he cannot stop gazing at the beauty of the Lord. I wonder if the fear of God has ever gripped you like this. I think one other aspect of the fear of God is it makes you absolutely alone with him. Have you ever really been alone with God? Now, I, I, I don't mean alone in a room praying. I mean, has the fear of God, the sense of his holiness, the sense of his reality, set so strongly upon you through the Holy Spirit illumining the words of Scripture to where you not just understand intellectually, but you know who God is, and you are absolutely undone, and there is no one else in your mind. There is literally no one else in the universe. As much as you love your family and your friends and everyone around you, the fear of God causes you to be absolutely alone with him. What a dreadful and awesome experience. Has it ever really happened to you? I remember when it first happened to me as a freshman at the University of Richmond. I had grown up, I had grown up in church. I would prayed a hundred thousand times. And it wasn't until God started breaking me down through all kinds of circumstances, all kinds of ways. I felt my life falling between my fingers, this life that I had created and written a script for. I was getting kicked off the soccer team. I had a 1.5 grade point average. Yeah, I said 1.5 grade point average. 
My friends were all going on to do other things. And I was completely destroyed. And I never, had never prayed to God until one night he cornered me in the back pew of the University of Richmond Chapel on the left. I could take you there today. And literally, I sensed the fear of God for the first time in my life. And I had prayed millions of times. And I was alone with him, finally. Has that fear ever hit you? Now, why does David pray this way? Why does David seek the Lord this way? Because the reality is, is that fear can only be overcome by a greater fear. It's so simple. I mean, it, it, it is so simple, but yet it can, it's so simple that it can be overlooked. It's almost like, let's say you have a fear of water, but you will lose your fear of water if your child that cannot swim falls in. Okay? I mean, it's pretty simple, isn't it? You lose your fear of water if you have to save your drowning child. Okay? It's maybe if you're in business, think about this. Let's say you've invested in a, sm- a small investment and you take a few minutes off of work to check the stock ticker and you see that the investment that you put a couple thousand dollars in is tanking and you become very afraid. <laughs> but what happens if in the next moment you hear that your company's stock has also tanked and there are going to be layoffs. And you're in the marketing department and that is always the first place companies cut first. <laughs> I see a couple of you laughing. <laughs> um, you forget about your $2,000, don't you? In light of a greater fear. It's so simple, but here's the thing. We think that we fear God, but we don't. This is how I know. Because we fear others. If we were to truly fear God, we would not be people-pleasing. We would not care about other people's opinions. We would not need people to approve of us or to affirm us or to give us the things that we need that are essential to life. We would not fear them if we really feared God as who he is in himself. Think about it this way. Do this. Think about that person that came to your mind when I started going through all all the litany of ways that we fear man. I want you to do that right now. Think about the person that you would say you fear the most. It could be your dad, your boss, your spouse, your wife, your friend, your pastor, anything. Now, think for a moment what we talked about last week. God in his greatness. Right? God in his goodness. The fact that God cannot be fully known. The fact that God knows everything because he is eternal. He knows the future as well as the present and the past. He's never had to learn anything and nothing ever surprises him. God knows everything. Think for a moment, God is powerful. That he sits above the earth and the power of all the kings in the world are as nothing to him. Think about God being absolutely so in control that there is not one random atom in the entire universe Think about the fact that God never gets tired. He requires us to sleep so that we know that we are not in control. He is immense so much that he measures the vastness of space between his thumb and his pinky. And now add to that that God is holy and that he is glorious. Now, set God next to that person that you have in your mind. Who is more glorious? 
Who is more majestic? Who is more meaningful? Who is more real? Who should be worshipped? And who should be feared? Such a simple exercise. Such a profound difference that can make. We have to pursue and pray to see the glory of the Lord that way if we're to be delivered from any of our fears. You cannot convince yourself that this person really isn't that strong or that person really doesn't matter or I really don't have this need. You can try to talk your way and tinker with your soul all day long, but nothing will change until you see the glory of God. Now, where do we see the glory of God best? I've saved this, I've saved this best for last. In Psalm 130, David prayed this, Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. Very similar to Isaiah's experience. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. It says in verse 2 or 3, If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, who could stand? But there is forgiveness with you that you might be feared. God displays his glory most in the cross. We will fear God the most as we peer into the particulars and the nuances and the realities of Jesus dying on the cross for our sins. There is no greater display of his glory. Think about this. God's purity and holiness are put on display in him punishing his son for our sins. Think about how pure and holy Jesus was. Lived a completely sinless life. Obeyed his father perfectly. He said over and over, if you've seen me, you've seen the father. I do all these things because I always do what I see my father doing in heaven. He was the only perfect, holy man. Yet God is so holy and has so much anger against sin, and can so, is so pure that he cannot allow sin to remain in his presence so much the fact that even his own son, when sin is put upon him, it pleased him to crush him, to execute his wrath and his justice against something that he just simply cannot abide. God is that holy. You cannot get a better picture of God's holiness than when you see him crush his good and only and pure son with our sin on the cross. You will not see his holiness any better than that. I talked about there's two aspects of fear. It's not just woe. There's a reverence and admiration and beauty. Think about this. Think about you in contrast to this great God and all the things that we would have to do to rightfully serve him and rightfully please him and the things that we don't do. All right? Is there anything more beautiful or glorious or magnificent or powerful than to think about God forgiving all that sin? In just a minute, we're going to sing these lines. Because this sinless Savior died, 
my sinful soul is counted free. For God, the just, is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. What wisdom, what power, what goodness, what glory, what magnificence is there in that? That God retains all of his justice and yet is able to execute and display all of his graciousness and his love in the same moment. And he figured out a way to do it where he would save his church and not compromise his holiness, which would cause us to fear him. He wants us to know the kindness of the Lord and his severity. And that's what we receive when we gaze upon his beauty, his glory, and his holiness. In light of this, you don't need to be admired. (laughs) In light of this acceptance, you don't need to be accepted by anybody else. In light of this love, you don't need anyone else to love you for who you are. You don't need anything else. Our needs and wants diminish as quickly as if you were to take a flashlight and walk outside in the full view of the sun. All that you think you need will be absolutely forgotten in the delightful fear of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, we say holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of your glory. Help us by your spirit respond to you now in a way that is worthy of your name and of your holiness. Amen.